You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and myself, Steve Allen. It is yourself, Steve Allen. Um, you may hear a helicopter flying overhead right now that just proves that I'm, uh, I'm living in Securita, which seems to be a hive of, uh, of helicopter activity. Today is September the 5th at 1.55pm. We have pre-recorded this show because it comes out on Mondays. And Steve, big news, the big news for us at Shrink the Virus HQ is that we're taking a sabbatical, aren't we? Yes, we're taking a bit of sabbatical from the show. We're not sure for how long. I suspect it's indefinite at this point until we figure it out. But we did want to take this opportunity, seeing we're taking a sabbatical, to say thank you for everyone, obviously, especially all the guests. I forget what, I think this is show number 27. So we must have had about 24, 25 guests on the show. So a massive thank you to all of them for uh, joining us and chatting with us, of course. Yeah, for um, because you know people are taking time out of their days and being honest about uh, about what it's like uh, during the pandemic, and yeah, thank you so much for doing that, and also to the stars at Triple R. I mean, the, the the two that we have most contact with are Elizabeth and Michael, who do the word editing and the publishing and the music editing and the sound editing or the sound editing on a on our show. So thank you guys. And of course, everybody else at Triple R too. Yeah, you know, Beck, Mir and Grace gave yeah. us a lot of support getting this up. Yeah, so thank you, guys. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Steve, lots to talk about in the last week. First up, let's intro our guest. Oh, of course. Because on the show today, we have Dr. Rebecca Hope, and I have her titles written down. She's a psychiatrist, Rebecca. She works at the Alfred. She works in the emergency department as a psychiatrist, but she's also the psychiatrist to their statewide gambling service, which is called the Alfred Mental Health and Gambling Gambling harm, gambling harm, harm service, gambling harm service. I was trying to read a word. It looked like I've written hands, but it's the gambling. Doctor's writing. (laughs) I've never been able to read my writing or anything. Have you ever seen? I don't know why we bother. Have you seen that? that, Rebecca's um, great. So stick around because she gives some great insights into what it's like working in the emergency department and some of the impacts of COVID. I was going to say, have you seen that cartoon with a whole lot of doctors protesting and they're carrying these signs, but they're illegible? I know it's beautiful. <laughs> so I was just, um, I was just asking you, um, what have you been up to, and uh, tell us about some of the news. What have I been up to? Oh man, I've just been busy, which is part of the reason we're taking a sabbatical, mm. of course. I've just been flat out. I'm working five. You know, normally I work part time and on psychiatry, and I have um, you know a few days, a couple of days a week to do. Sp- you know, my other interests and hobbies, but I'm working, you know, full, full I'm working full time at the moment. And when you work full time in a public hospital, of course, it spills over to weekends and stuff because you always have extra work in the public system. So if you work three days a week, you end up working really four. If you work four, you end up working five. If you work five, you end up working six. So I'm a bit worn out, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah, heaps going on, heaps going on. And uh, it's been good, though. We've had a lot to do with, you know, various programs that are going on, like the Hotels for Heroes, mm. providing a mental health mm. service for them, plus, mm. of course, the well-being of our own hospital staff, plus, of course, looking after all the patients. Mm. So uh, it's been 
busy times, and I think everyone in the health system is a bit tired, to be honest. It has been a long haul, and I think you put it really well a couple of shows ago where you said you, we were, you know, we we just gotten through our first uh, marathon, and then we're told, up, oh, we've got another marathon to go, and there could be another one after that. And it, it, you know, it is it's tough going right now, isn't it? How long we've we been in lockdowns for now? Would have been this one's a so this one's a six week. It's due to end so, on the third, twelfth or thirteenth of September, and we're into about week five. Five, and, and then we so, had the first one, which was six weeks as well, was it? Yeah, not as strict as this one. Yeah, it's like so level that was four with a curfew and everything. Yeah, so sort of eleven weeks in a lockdown. That's you know, it's tough, especially as you say in uh, healthcare where. You know, especially when you're one of the frontline workers, aren't you? Well, I'm not front, front, front line. I'm more of administration, but I still see <laughs> patients. But almost, yeah. you know, I saw about five this, five or six this week, but they're all um, on telehealth. I haven't seen all anyone right. face-to-face now oh, for right. a few weeks. Since okay. we've been in stage four, it t- seems that everyone's got super serious. Yeah. In the first lockdown, lots of patients still turned up to our patients, and so I was seeing patients face-to-face. The only time I'm seeing them face-to-face now is on my ward round, mm. and I only do one ward round a week on a Thursday, and so then we go up to the wards and we wander around and we're in our you know ppe and we're seeing people face we're walking into their rooms and stuff mind you i'm at a a cancer hospital and so we don't have much COVID, so we're not in the super duper ppe with all the n95 and stuff um but otherwise all my outpatients are um by either the mostly by the telephone it seems to have devolved Mm -hmm. to the telephone more than telehealth you know Mm -hmm. telehealth meaning on the computer but uh, you can tell, though, that everyone's getting very restless. You know, I keep thinking, oh, the natives are getting restless because, you know, everyone's having a go at poor old Dan Andrews at the moment. Mm, you know, mm. the federal politicians are jumping in. There's been potential protests to talk about. Um, you know, a couple of – we mentioned this in our conversation with Rebecca, but, you know, there's been a couple of arrests, in, including the one that was quite controversial of a, a mum, apparently a pregnant mother with a couple of kids, was arrested in her house for putting something up on Facebook. So – you know, there's a lot of people starting to ask questions about why do we have a curfew and and do we need to be so heavy handed when, you know, with people just putting stupid posts on Facebook, you know, what's going on? Do we, you know, do we need to adjust our attitudes? And, and, you know, it, it gets me thinking, cause you know, you know, I've been a big fan of Dan Andrews and Scott Morrison. I think they've both done yep. an incredible job really throughout this whole thing, yep. but I'm sort of starting to wonder whether Dan Andrews views were forged early on in the pandemic when, you know, some of the numbers and figures we were talking about back then were much more severe. And I guess we're getting a stronger attitude, uh, a stronger impression now of the actual implications of COVID, but they're still going both ways. Like you and I have both looked up things this week. Like I looked up where the... Di- the death rates are at at the moment because, you know, because I was thinking along these lines of early on in the pandemic, people were talking about a death rate between five and 10%. You know, some of the numbers in Italy coming out back then were 10% of people who got COVID died. Now, none of us in the health industry believed it. I said a number of times early on, I just don't believe it because we're counting all the people who are dying, but we don't really know how many people have got COVID because we're not doing widespread testing. And of course, as we've done more and more testing, that rate's gone down and down and down. And in fact, there was a beautiful summary of it all in Nature this week. Oh, what they say? You know, and you know, for those who you know, we've said this before, I know, but Nature's like the top science journal in the world, and uh, so they had a great summary of where the rates are at. And in fact, obviously, as they've started figuring out how many people actually have COVID, and in particular, how many have asymptomatic COVID, you know, hundreds of thousands. Of course, once you you know get the true number of the people who are sick and the people who are dying, you can work out the rate. So the the rate now appears to be about point somewhere between about point. 7 and 0.9. 
So mm. different countries are getting slightly different rates, but it's mostly around 0.8, meaning, you know, eight people for every thousand who get it. But what's been really striking is what the risk factors are. Mm. So by far the number one risk factor by a long shot is age. You know, if you're under 50, really per thousand people, virtually no one die. You know, it's not many die under under 50. It's it's pretty rare. Um, between 50 and 60, it starts climbing up. And once you're over sort of 65, 75, it, um, you know, it gets to uh, much more significant numbers. Like, for example, if you're a 75-year-old, it gets as high as 10%. Sure. Now, the other big risk factors are, I th- one that I think is going to surprise you a little bit is gender. Yeah, so males men, are, yeah, twice as twice as likely. Yeah, yeah, it appears to be twice as high for men. Gender's a big risk factor. Yeah. Um, another big risk factor is how overwhelmed the health system gets. So, because there's a lot of differences between countries, and people are trying to figure out what these differences mean. Um, and the two big factors that seem to re- um, relate to different countries, or maybe three factors, is the first one's obvious what proportion of old people, like Italy has a high proportion of old people, their death rate was higher. But the other two ones are how overwhelmed the health system gets in your country. And the second one is what is the quality of your nursing homes? Because mm. a lot of the deaths occurring yeah. are occurring in the shitty nursing homes that are overcrowded with poor health care and poor PPE. That's been a real issue. So, you know, nursing homes, you know, like we've, you know, we've seen this in Australia too, nursing homes that, uh, that are too crowded and don't have good quality um, health staff who aren't well-trained in PPE. So they spread, so they catch COVID themselves and they spread it from one person to the next. So, yeah, but overall, the news around the death rate's fantastic compared to early in the pandemic when people were thinking 10%. It's, and that's, and the reason I looked this up is because, you know, as I was saying, you know, I think a lot of the attitudes of our current government in Victoria were forged when people, you know, were much worse. And in, in effect, I said, guess what I'm going to say? I don't know if this is controversial, but early on, people thought COVID was like the plague. Now, COVID's not like the plague. It's not like cancer. It's not probably even as severe as the flu pandemic. The death rate's way lower. The flu pandemic of, seven, of you know, 1918, I'm talking about, where the death rate was supposedly between 5 and 10%. This is much lower. And so we now, I think it's time, it is time to rethink some of our attitudes about what we need to do. <laughs> I was waiting for you to take a breath. Sorry. The, um, no, 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 that's fine. Um, I, look, I think at the start, don't forget, in, was it uh, April, May, we had images of makeshift morgues in Central Park and those horrendous uh, images of Italian ICUs and um, the ICU doctors having to make these impossible decisions about who to admit to an overcrowded ICU and who they just couldn't take, you know, and and that was just desperately hard to watch. So I think they're the images that were fresh in our minds, I think, you know, right at the start. And as you say, look, things have changed. I was reading an interesting article in The Australian today, in the, in the Australian um, Weekend Australian magazine, about people who have got COVID and who've recovered from it, but still have persistent symptoms. And I'd heard about this, but I really hadn't had a good kind of narrative story told. And the, the, the story in The Australian is really, really good. Um, but basically, there is a group of people, and we're just trying to figure out the numbers, who they have the, they have the illness of COVID, they recover, and yet they still have these, a lot of people say these really weirdo symptoms, things like, you know, hot and uh, cold, uh, sweats, tingly fingers, the, you know, scalp burning, um, and those kind of 
those symptoms that are hard to pin down. The most common one seems to be dyspnea, which is shortness of breath. And that seems to be a fairly common, long, they're called long haul, long haul uh, uh, symptoms. And I think it'll be, it'll, this will, I think, refocus a lot of the research on COVID, I think, as we get a vaccine and as people have recovered, uh, to see what's actually going on with these, uh, these people that are suffering these long haul symptom, uh, symptoms. So far, the postulate, it's something to do either with the damage done with the acute inflammatory reaction when people actually got the illness, you know, that cytokine storm, or mm. it's something to do with a chronic inflammatory ongoing process. And at the moment, we're not exactly sure, but it's certainly an area which is, I reckon is going to see a lot of research. Yeah, it's quite interesting. We don't know. You know, we still spend more time discussing the politics of COVID, the politics of shutdown, the economies of shutdown than we do the actual illness. I probably know more about those effects of COVID than I do the basics. In fact, early on in COVID, remember I wrote, um, I think an article, just a little thing for my website called COVID 101, you know, the basics. What are the symptoms? How quickly do they come on? What medications should you take? You know, the basics, because, you know, this is such a massive social and political and psychological event that we're all going through that sometimes we forget the actual basics and the long-term effects of COVID, you know, poorly understood at this stage for obvious reasons. It's only been going for about eight or nine months. And so, you know, the, uh, as far as I know, last time I checked, there's only been like one or two studies following people beyond two months. I think there are going to be a couple, of, a couple more studies coming out. Down uh, to, now. Yeah. In fact, I, don't think, I think there's one um, going on now in Sydney. Um, yeah, but, you know, as you say, there are the physical effects and the biological effects. But one other thing that COVID does is it reveals a whole lot of social fault lines. And uh, none more clearly than the United States, where COVID, I mean, all these, these problems with the healthcare system were, and, you know, and the political divide, they were there in the States, but COVID really highlighted them. And I think that's what it does all the time. Mm. Anyway, mate, we've been going on and on and on. Yep. We should get to our guest. She is Rebecca Hope. She's a consultant psychiatrist. Um, she works in the emergency department, and she's got some really, really good insights about what it's like to work there. So let's hop to it. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for joining us on Shrink the Virus. It's lovely to be here, Rob. On a bright, sunny day. We've kept you inside. Sorry. Oh, no, it's actually okay because the uh, helicopters are doing circuits around the Alfred pad at the moment, so it's a bit noisy out there. Oh, right. I've, I've actually have those helicopters around me too in St Kilda. Mm. I was wondering what that was about. Anyway. Wait a sec. Does that mean, Rebecca, you live at the Alfred or you live <laughs> next to the Alfred? Because it looks like, you know, Judd, based on the Zoom image I see, you look like you're in your lounge room. Uh, yeah, my lounge room at the Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> she got one of those special deals. <laughs> uh, I think it's the same helicopter that's probably doing circuits around St Kilda and uh, waiting to land at the Alfred, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Nice. Now, Rebecca, tell us what sort of work you do. Uh, so I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I work in the emergency department um, around the corner. And I also work for uh, the statewide gambling service. Mm. So you work um, in the emergency department. Tell us what that's like. What do you do? Dave? I mean, what type of psychiatry is that like? Um, well, I guess it's, uh, you know, pretty acute and um, in the moment. Uh, so essentially, these are people, all sorts of, um, walks of life who are present to an emergency department um, with 
various forms of distress. And um, I guess it's, it's really people who, a lot of them we haven't seen before, some of them we have. So often we don't have a lot of information about the person and it's actually you've got a really short period of time to get to know them to figure out what their needs are. Um, and often that's when they're really distressed. So um, you kind of do the best that you can in the short period of time with the information that you have and try and make it as less traumatic as possible as you can for the person. But it's, um, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that people come in and they're at their most vulnerable. And, um, you know, I get to work with an amazing team as well. Um, mm. And so trying to have a bit of a sense of humor and camaraderie with them is kind of what's, what um, makes the job really, really fun um, mm. in some quite difficult times. Mm. You know, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, we started off just historically, we started off with um, psych services in emergency departments in the 80s and mm. early 90s. And then they all gradually closed. And we just had consult services that would go down when we were called. But they were pretty hopeless because, you know, they'd be down in emergency department and they'd call the consult service. And usually they'd take two hours to get there because they were booked seeing other patients or in out patients. And then yep. in the last five to 10 years, we've rebuilt them all, which I think a great thing mm. and now and they've been rebuilt bigger and better than ever and now you know it's it might be worthwhile you you know t explaining to people what it's what a, the psych service ex consists of in an emergency mm. department because i think a lot of people still don't realize that when you have acute problems and you psychiatrically um you know have needs you can just go to your local hospital and front up to the emergency department so like what is it what's a, the psych department in emergency look like for an from an outsider's perspective um, well, there's a whole team of us in there. Um, so there's always 24 seven. Um, there's always at least two or three people, uh, who are available, um, who, who are trained in, um, uh, psychiatry and this, this team consists of, so we've got a psychiatry consultant is myself. Um, I'm there, uh, sort of five mornings a week and a couple of afternoons. And then, um, there's a bunch of nurses on the team who are specialist psychiatry nurses, um, social workers and, um, we also are, are trying to get, um, you know, connect with a, a few more, um, particularly drug and alcohol um, specialist workers as well. Uh, we have one um, in the emergency department at the moment, and there's a huge need for people, um, particularly during COVID with the escalating substance abuse um, issues and alcohol issues, um, and so much of our you know work that we do in psychiatry is interlaced with drug and alcohol people with drug and alcohol issues you know they're very much sort of part of part of a package rather than having separate services manage them so uh as i say it's always kind of an integrated team um so we see people uh, of all sorts um and so as i say people can come into the emergency department with uh you know physical issues or clear mental health issues, um, but they'll always be assessed uh, uh, firstly by the triage there. And sometimes it actually takes a little bit longer for the doctors in the emergency department to figure out, wait on a minute, there's actually an underlying psychiatric issue here. So sometimes we'll see people immediately when they front up to the emergency department. Um, there's an area uh, where we can see people, particularly if they're acutely agitated, um, and we see them immediately. Uh, or if it takes a little bit more time to figure things out, um, our team can then come and um, work with the emergency doctors and nurses to be able to come up with a, a um, good treatment plan. And you even have a, like a little mini ward in ED these days, don't you, where people can stay, you know, 48 hours yet not be in the hustle and bustle of ED surrounded by noise and distractions. 
Yeah, the hardest thing in, in an emergency department, particularly people who are really distressed, so whether they're struggling with suicidal thoughts or whether they're actually really struggling with aggressive impulses themselves, is actually, ED is such a chaotic environment. You know, there's always the beeping and the tweeting and the, you know, the, the bustle going on, and that in itself is a really hard environment for people to be in. So there is a wee, um, wee area, it's a four-bed unit, uh, and it um, is much, much quieter, kind of sort of off the side, um, a little bit kind of less stimulus um, where people, um, as long as they've been kind of, um, you know, they're safe to be in there, um, yeah. can have kind of some closer nursing, um, some nurses are specialists in dealing with patients with mental health issues. Um, and that certainly helps. Rebecca, have you noticed a difference in the, the number or the type of presentations you're getting to the emergency department? during COVID in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, it's it's a really um, unusual time for for people um, in, in all senses of the word. I mean, the first kind of change in presentation, the first um, lockdown that we noticed, actually all emergency department presentations, um, general and psychiatric, were down uh, significantly. And then the second lockdown, um, we've noticed that, so the medical um, admissions were down um, somewhat, but psychiatry this time round, is, is um, just as busy as it was prior to COVID, if not more. Um, in fact, uh, uh, the week before last, we hit our record for um, what we call box, which are um, the emergency presentation when somebody's presenting acutely distressed with either suicidal intent or aggression. Um, and really what we've seen a huge escalation from is particularly this time round, is people presenting acutely intoxicated um, and very aggressive. Um, so the amount of um, particularly meth and there's some really dirty GHB out around at the moment um, that is we're getting some really really um, sort of toxic presentations and, and the degree of kind of disturbance that they're causing is is really troubling not just you know for for patients families but you know the the um, you know the emergency department as I say it's a pretty tricky environment when you've got somebody who's very chaotic and um, then you add in the, the person not being able to give you a history about whether they've been exposed to COVID risks and you add in the, you know, everybody's sort of donned up in PPE and you've got this highly agitated patient who's, who's you know, aggressive towards staff and how, you know, how do you negotiate the, the PPE stuff as well as the aggression? So it's a very tricky, tricky combination at the moment. I'm a little bit surprised, though, that the presentations are up for um, those sort of aggressive behaviours and drugs, because I just assumed in lockdown, sure, people can get drugs, but given they're not going out to parties and nightclubs and, and sharing and stuff like that, I just assumed that all that would be down. Well, you, you, well, you may, may well, it turns out no, <laughs> because I think there's, I think there's several reasons why, why it's increasing. The first is that, you know, people are bored. Um, and, it, you know, the, the first week of the lockdown, um, the first lockdown, we noticed that um, there was actually a significant, uh, what I noted was there were quite a few people presenting acutely distressed and withdrawal because they're suddenly being stuck in their houses and didn't have access to their substances. Um, so from, from what I can gather, um, you know, the, the dealers are, you know, significantly improved their service and, you know, they deliver and do all that stuff. So access is certainly back, you know, where it was before. And also this time round, um, because of the uh, supply chains um, from Southeast Asia, where a lot of the meth was coming from to um, Australia, those have been disrupted. So essentially, 
the issue is a lot of it's been um, locally Australian made and not to not things that are Australian made, but you really do make terrible meth. Um, it's, it's just sort of like mixed in with other stuff. And, and the other thing is that buying locally made meth is much more expensive um, and it's dirty as well. Uh, so there's lots of other stuff mixed in sort of, and we're getting a lot of um, really sort of bizarre combo kind of um, like GHB, dirty GHB kind of overdoses. So um, so, you know, people, some people are using less meth because it's more expensive and there's less of it available, but it seems like the, the boredom and the need for stimulation um, is overriding that. Wow. You know, one of the questions we were going to ask you was, you know, how do you see the social forces interacting with the psychological forces? And that's a really interesting yeah. example, which I hadn't predicted that yeah. the <laughs> supply chain of drugs has changed. And of course, that's yeah. going to change the presentation. Other other things that you've noticed as well in terms of other social forces that have come to bear on mental health presentations? Yeah, absolutely. The, the other really big one is, is um, and I guess, you know, the same thing that we can probably all individually identify is what COVID has done really to us as humans is this loss of connection. Um, and, and I know for me personally, it's been, uh, you know, a real learning experience about where do I get my attachment feed or needs met, you know, from people. And it turns out that actually sitting around, having a yarn, having a coffee randomly a couple of times a week is actually like, you know, that's that's actually a really important thing to sustain people. And and I think particularly people who live alone, um, this COVID, second time COVID has been very hard and this just this loss of um, connection and I think people are really finding um, the physical disconnection as well as that um, social disconnection very stressful. We've certainly noticed that, whilst, I mean statistically speaking so far, whilst the official suicide rate hasn't gone up, um, we're getting a huge amount of stress and distress presentations relating to you know, the, the massive amount of people who are unemployed, um, you know, these trying to adjust to this loss of sense of role um, you know, what that means to be home with the rest of your family all the time, you know, certainly domestic violence rates, um, you know, are up. So people are actually having to negotiate some absolutely incredible life stresses and, and it's sort of this added um, pressure of the fact that everybody's going through this at the same time, which one way you'd kind of think might make you feel less lonely, but these people are you know, so sort of, there's also the meta view of what's happening in Melbourne and the world at the moment. You know, our creativity and our um, vitality of, uh, you know, it sort of feels like the the lockdown has, is kind of suffocating that off. And I think people are really struggling um, in, in that sense to, to get that. Because I think creativity in particular is, you know, part of human connection. And, and I think um, people are really feeling that. Yeah, I think you've raised some really good points there, Rebecca. Um, you know, just to get it out of the way, because we've discussed it a few times, the suicide rate. You know, I'm I'm very suspicious of suicide rates still. Mm. I mean, I have been my whole career for good reason, because everyone says they're unreliable. How do you, you know, measure it? And often we don't know whether something's a, a, called a suicide or not until two years down the track when the coroner declares that, yes, that was a suicide. And the acute figures, although people from the health department tell me they're very reliable and they get them on a month-by-month basis, I'm highly suspicious for not only because of, you know, the reporting, but also because I don't think suicide's a good measure of community distress. There's no. so many factors that imp- that impact on suicide rates. Distress yeah. is just one of many, 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 many factors. Yeah. Um, because I, we're hearing just broadly everywhere that admission rates are up, 
yep. presentations to EDs are up. Everyone we speak to in every area, whether it's domestic violence, um, mental health in emergency departments, mental health in wards, everyone says it's up. Private practitioners tell us it's up. But then, uh, you know, so that suicide rate, the fact that that hasn't gone up, the officially reported one, that just gives me more reason to be a bit suspicious. Where, whereas like you, um, you know, it's just the thing that I'm hearing from everyone is that comment that you made about those, you know, casual little social contact that we all are used to going to the market, having a coffee, walking down the street, bumping into someone, smiling at someone as you walk past them, you know, that stuff's all just completely changed. And it yeah. it's almost seems like we don't have the language or the measures to, to talk about that. Cause we, we just don't, you know, it's, we're all noticing it, but we don't quite know how to, measure it or put it into words or, you know, provide the science that goes along with the human experience that you describe. Mm. Yeah, and I think particularly, I mean, we know from developmentally, you know, the first couple of years, that's where babies learn, you know, their personality develops through this reciprocal, spontaneous relationship between um, uh, the parent or the primary caregiver's right brain and the baby's right brain. And that's a very spontaneous connection through... Uh, facial gestures, smiling, and eyes. And I think, you know, while, while we know that stuff really matters to babies' development, um, you know, I, I wonder, you know, is, is COVID actually showing us that that stuff really matters to us as adults? Um, yeah, I agree. The other thing I wonder about along those lines, too, is the impact of, um, what am I, how am I going to put this, tighter controls, you know, I just wonder what the impact on our mental health is of having things like a curfew, having, you know, reports in the papers of a, you know, well, there was one this week of a pregnant mum who was arrested in front of her children because she posted something stupid about some bloody protest on Facebook. She says, I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought it was a good thing to post. And, you know, all of a sudden she's being marched out and her computer's confiscated. She's on bail and her bail conditions, she's not allowed on social media, you know, sort of. Those sort of things, I think, have an effect on us. It makes us, you know, it's sort of like, it shows us that, ooh, the fact that we all thought we lived in a free society, well, for me personally, maybe I shouldn't talk about others. For me personally, that makes me really angsty and anxious. And I just don't know if I like knowing that I, I could be living in this society. Yeah. I don't know if that's a real thing or if I, it's just me and my bias against loss of freedoms. I just think, I think we value them and I think it's scary. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, you're identifying this as like, oh, is this something in the back of my mind? It's actually not just something that's in the back of people's mind. It's actually something that's very, very effective and important to us as humans again. So we have a, you know, huge amount of the people that um, do present to emergency department with us with suicidal um, attempts or just incredible distress have a history of, of very complex um, trauma. Mm-hmm. And so with trauma, as we know, you know, the primitive parts of the brain, the amygdala, they just, they continue to record, you know, very primitive sort of fear and basic emotions that occur during the time when they've experienced their trauma. So subsequently, um, if you kind of, it's almost a bit like if you put somebody back in the same kind of template or something that sort of smells the same, you know, the same experience, the person can get this kind of terrible, um, you know, reliving and, and ex- um, you know, re-experiencing of the trauma again. Um, and I think COVID in particular for people who have been under significant control or um, this experience of being uh, locked up or um, not allowed to leave a place can actually be 
um, particularly powerful. Given that it's actually going on for sort of months, um, it's a fairly sort of insidious pressure. Um, just back to that, the, the idea of, I was fascinated to hear you talk about facial expressions. And um, look, we do know that uh, infants and, and parents exchange these wordless emotions through, through facial movements at, at, at a you know, very, very early stage. Mm. And that we kind of need them too. That was, a, that was a really interesting thing that you said that, that we still rely on them. Have you, what, have you made any accommodation, I guess, to the way that you interact with people um, because of the PP? Like I know um, one half of the, of the hosts on this show stands in front of the mirror for half an hour a day and does eye exercises to make you sure that... Do you? I was going <laughs> to say, your eyes are looking very muscular. Yeah. Your What's wrinkles it? have gone on your forehead. One yeah. half that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you think that I stand in front of the mirror for <laughs> half an hour and... I've told, never told you that in my life. You but, you do st- but, but don't you stand in, didn't, weren't you practicing in front of a mirror for a while? I did, no, I did tell you that when we first started wearing masks, I stood yeah. in front of a mirror to make sure I could, you know, get the, express my emotions to patients because oh. I think that's important. But practicing for a half an hour a day <laughs> is may have exaggerated a little. Totally <laughs> I was waiting to see if he was going to bite any bit. Um, yeah, do, do you do anything differently in the way that you do your no. nonverbal communication? No. Um, I mean, I, I haven't spent that much amount of time in front of the mirror exercising my eyebrows, um, but look, I'm, I'm willing to do, you know, <laughs> if you think it helps, look, uh, you know, connect, I'm willing to help out. Steve can what give do, you some lessons. What do you have to wear in ED? What PPE do you have to wear when you're seeing um, patients in ED at the moment? <laughs> um, so... Psychiatry, we've historically always worn plain clothes, and that's great for people to be able to identify us in there and not mistake us for a medical doctor who knows medical things. Um, so oh, you know medical things. <laughs> Don't be so humble. So, um, so, so we wear scrubs now, um, which upsets me because that's you know loss of one of my sources of creativity is what I wear in the morning. I know that's really sad, but turns out the little things matter. Um, so um, I also. Uh, then on top of that, we wear, um, so the PPE, um, if we're seeing a patient who is COVID suspected or COVID positive, um, and that includes your um, nice plastic gown, um, depends yellow or blue, depending on what's available in your skin tone, uh, and then gloves, and we wear the big face shield, we wear um, uh, N95 mask, which are the orange ones, um, which uh, fit very, very tightly. So you just have to be super careful about not getting pressure sores across your nose. And um, if the patient's COVID positive, we're also a hairnet and booties. And I think that's about it. Because I'm, I'm told those, N- I haven't had to wear an N95, but everyone says they're super uncomfortable. And after a long day in ED, one of my mates is an emergency physician. He says yeah. after a long day in ED, his face is just, you know, he says it's just sore from having yeah, the damn thing on yeah, all day. Yeah. I mean, we're a bit more lucky in the EPS office. As in the office, we come back, we've just put the blue ones back on. Um, but yeah, I really feel for the ED people who are in there all day because they literally do get pressure sores off them and they're, they're quite, you know, quite nasty. But, you know, they're, they're actually easier to breathe through than what the blue ones are, but it's just the actual pressure on them that's the problem. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned that you work in gambling. And I'm wondering with the, all the lockdown, whether there's, um, I suppose it's hard to measure whether there's an impact in gambling in the short time, but I, I assume that a lot more people when they're bored sit around on their phone betting on the footy and the whatever, yep. you know, whatever they can. Have you noticed any problems from the gambling perspective? Um, 
Well, gambling is a bit of a funny one as well in terms of actually what you notice in the emergency department because um, a lot of people won't disclose if they have gambling difficulties, um, but we know that one in five, as of 10 years ago, presenting to an emergency department with suicidal um, attempts did have a history of gambling harms. So the latest research that's come out of the foundation um, is that, as probably predicted, there's been a 70% increase in online gambling uh, since the beginning onset of COVID. So it's pretty huge. Uh, you know, anecdotally, kind of with our, our patients at the moment, the ones who were into pokies before and tended to do that, you know, in a casino environment, with the shutdown of the casinos, they've actually not, sw- we haven't seen them sort of quite as much sort of switch to other modalities. Um, and uh, so the, the you know, with the, with the casino lockdowns, there is a significant concern about when things open up again, that there's going to be, you know, a significant um, amount of people affected but it's um, particularly people being online a lot more at home and from what I understand also that the actual massive increase in this online gambling came specifically when the schooling went online so it's a a sense of actually you know what while you're already connected um, you're doing this and the access to it is just incredible on the internet particularly now for young people who are um, you know there's a lot of in-game um, gambling, so with with online gaming, yeah. it's actually uh, you know loot boxes or uh, stuff like that, as well as the actual direct advertisements um, on the side of the screen. Yes, so much subtle gambling. I recently joined a gin rummy thing to play gin rummy online because um, oh, one of you know my uh, girlfriend was on, and so we were playing gin rummy together. And there's all these triggers to gamble just during your yeah. damn game of gin rummy. Uh, um, it does sound really stressful though. Your work. What do you do to decompress? Um, oh, okay. Well, first thing is I have a good laugh with uh, what, you know, to get together us, us uh, kind of as a team. Um, you know, we have specific things that we do as a team to be able to to have a break. Um, and um, so that, you know, we have on Mondays, we have education, which is when one of us bakes a cake <laughs> and then we do some sort of education activity. Um, is it like my, related to the cake? You know, like this is how you cook a sponge cake. Uh, that no, sort we, of education. We, we, we do kind of random stuff. Like um, a few weeks back, um, everybody, uh, you know, was to bring along their favourite representation of psychiatry and the arts and talk about, you know, what it was. So it was like a, you know, whether it's a painting, an opera or something like that. And we oh, eat wow. cake at the same time, which is very therapeutic. What, what did you bring, Rebecca? What did I bring? Um, I actually brought uh, one of Miro's paintings. So he's a he's a fellow um, who uh, painted a lot, as most um, starving artists were, um, when he didn't have a lot of money. And he painted all these sort of abstract, kind of little figurative, bizarre thingies. So essentially, it was in the context of um, he had uh, hallucinations while he was um, hungry, and so that's what he painted. Huh. Sorry, I, interrupt, I interrupted you. You were saying other ways that you decompress too. Oh, okay. Uh, edu- 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 education, I love that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, so that's what we do as a team. Um, and so three times a week I do hit in the park. And That was exercise. We, we had a bit of uh, static there, so that's exercise. Yeah, something yeah. weird happened with sound then, so that'll no doubt um, oh, Robble do his magic and make that funny static go away. It only went for a couple of seconds. Hit in the park stands yeah. for? I do hit in the park. It's high-intensity training. Ah. So you, know, you wave your arms around a lot and jump up and down. And it's, that's, that's also very good for the soul because um, you get outside as well. Um, for your I do something very similar. It's lit on the couch, low-intensity oh. training on the couch, okay. where I change channels on the remote control using my left thumb. Sometimes I move to my right thumb. Okay. Yeah. I have friends who call lit something else, but, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, I interrupted you this time. <laughs> what else do I do? Um, well, I'm actually trying to get back into my printmaking a bit now as well. Because um, as I said before, in terms of this sort of creative, um, you know, this really real sense of a lot of the creativity stuff I'd get from, you know, other artists or friends or a part of the community going to galleries and things like that. Given that there's less of that round, I guess I'm sort of seeking it in other ways. And when so, you're not a psychiatrist, you're an artist, I'm gathering? Uh, yes, I'm a printmaker. Oh, what sort of prints? Um, oh, my God. oh, hold on. We can't do telly just now, can we? I can't direct my screen. No, you um, have so to do a picture tell. Um, <laughs> it's worth a thousand words. We'll give you a thousand words to describe <laughs> your picture. In fact, in fact we could call you um, the psychiatrist formerly known as Prince. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. You could have that little love sexy symbol. You know, yeah. the Prince had. Purple pants as well. I, I do wear <laughs> purple velvet pants, which go very uh, nice. Uh, Oh, that's funny. Hey, um, so screen printing. Sorry, just to get to uh, No, it's actually etchings. Um, oh, right. Metzitants mainly. A lot of them were uh, sort of medical-based, like anatomy-based, uh, sort of historical, uh, you know, lots of anatomical, historical um, images, um, and really about sort of the history of medicine and the evolving role of what an ideal doctor is and, you know, what the patient's role is and what the expectations are, those sorts of things. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Wow. In fact, we could do a whole show just on that because I know some of your print work and it's really excellent. Hey, final question, Rebecca. Yep. Um, what's one thing you're doing now that you're doing better since the start of COVID as compared to before? Mm, okay. Um, eating nacho chips. You're doing that better. Yeah, yeah. Doing more or better? <laughs> more. Um, more uh, I think I'm doing it faster, more efficiently, um, so there's that one, but also, um, look, I, I, I guess I am actually making an effort more to stop and connect with other people. Mm. Um, so again, the emergency department is super busy and you've always got 10,000 things to do and there's drama going on, but I've actively made an attempt to stop and actually listen more about what my colleagues want to say and stop and have a joke with them and stop and just look them in the eye and connect with them. You know, th those things. Yeah, oh, terrific stuff. Look, Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us on Shrink the Virus. Um, it's been really interesting having a chat. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go practice my eyebrows now. <laughs> Half an hour a day, remember? That's, that's what very, you need to achieve. That's very funny. So that was Shrink the Virus with the uh, wonderful Rebecca Hope. Um, we really hope you enjoyed the show. And we did talk about a few distressing things during that interview. So it's probably worthwhile just mentioning um, if you've got any distress, feel free, of course, to contact Lifeline or Beyond Blue. Both of them have fantastic websites with heaps of information yep. about stress, suicide, coronavirus, everything. Lifeline, you can and you can ring them both. Lifeline is 131114 and Beyond Blue is 1300 2246. Three six, but just Google them. It's so easy to get onto them. Great information. Um, what else do we have to do, Roberto? Tell people not to forget to uh, um, tune into Triple R every Sunday at ten a.m. Our show called Radiotherapy. Um, don't forget to subscribe. You can still subscribe. We last uh, we talked the last two shows about how it was uh, Radiothon, and so don't forget you can still subscribe to Triple R. It's well worth being a part of the community or donate. What else do we need to say? We are going on a sabbatical. We are going on a sabbatical. I love that word, sabbatical. It just covers a whole range of things, doesn't it? We are going on a sabbatical. Um, 
but in the meanwhile, until we're back, um, we've just, again, our hearts and loves and all warm fuzzies go to the wonderful people at Triple R, especially Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth, and Michael for making this happen. And all the guests. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope to speak to you again sometime. Bye-bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.